Consecrate yourselves, said Samuel, to a crowd in Bethlehem, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. It could have been of no consequences. It could have been expected that David was out working with the sheep that day. It could have been, but some have wondered at the idea that seven, number of completion, sons passed through. And only upon more prompted did Jesse finally reveal David. Some have wondered about how keeping the sheep was a girl's usual task, and David has a sister. We've been meeting her sons, Joab, Abishai, Azahel, in our studying together. Why was David doing the daughter's job? Maybe Zariah, his sister, was too young at the time. Some have wondered at the words of Psalm 51, verse 5 from David, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some have wondered at the scorn paid to David by his brother in 1 Samuel 17 when David comes to fight Goliath. Was it more than just jealousy over his being anointed king? What kind of sin did his mother conceive him in? Now, we do point to this text often, and rightly so, I believe, to to prove the reality of original sin and how all of mankind is, is affected by Adam's sin and past from generation to generation. But still, David's words are interesting, and the scorn paid to him is interesting. And if he is David, the, and if Jesus is the greater King David, we know how at Jesus' birth, through the, Verid, through the Virgin Mary, looked to some. Some of Jesus' opponents said, we weren't born of sexual Im- Immorality. We know our Father, God. Does the lesser King David share that slight in a more real way? We don't know, as I've been saying. We really don't know. But we do know that at least one of David's brothers was jealous of him. (laughs) I guess that means hurry up. Um, And we also know For reasons on Saul's side, even though David did nothing to provoke Saul, David was rejected by the king before him, sought for for his destruction. And after three of Saul's sons die, another son who was under suspicion and apparently helpless and somewhat hated, Ishbosheth, he comes to power. And if there's been anything in these opening chapters of 2 Samuel, Ishbosheth is only in power and seems to only keep that power so long as his general Abner has helped him. 
But Abner died in last week's text unjustly by David's general, Joab. David decried that murder. And this week, we'll see another unjust murder of another rejected son, Ishbosheth. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 4. We're going to read 4.1 through 5.5 today. I do invite you to stand if you're able to in honor of reading the Lord's Word. We read, when Ishbosheth's, when in, yeah. let me start over. <laughs> when that guy, Saul's son, which is actually follows the Greek better, and you'll find out here in a minute why. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bayana, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Berothites fled to Gataim and have been sojourners there to this day. So glad he cleared that up for us. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mophibosheth. Now the sons of, I'm going to go with Rimon, the Berothite, Rechab and Bayana, Bayana set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bayana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day, on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimon the Berothite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who let out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Let's pray. Father, we're reading a very graphic story. Um, sometimes 
We wonder, why do you include all this? What's the importance of knowing this ancient history? It's easy for people who enjoy history. It's harder for people who enjoy math. Why, I don't know. Um, We do ask that you would open up our hearts and our ears and our minds to receive what it is you want us to through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you wrote these words, you've recorded them, you've kept them for many years, and I believe you still expect them to do surgery on our hearts and to change our minds, to be renewed by your Spirit. So have your way, we pray. Say what it is you desire in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be talking about a rejected son of Israel. We'll be talking about an omnipotent father, as if I had selected that song. And finally, fulfilled kingship. How rejected is Ishbosheth? And as I said, in the Greek, this actually does read, when Saul's son heard that Abner has died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. The the name is supplied by some translations to remind readers who it is we're talking about by Saul's son, maybe not to confuse them with Saul's grandson Mephibosheth, who was mentioned later. But the idea also is that Ishbosheth is perhaps of no consequence. He's rather infamous, unpopular in Israel. It's really Abner's kingdom. And I've been saying that Ishbosheth is a puppet king. In order for somebody like Ishbosheth to fulfill puppet king status, something about him must have been willing or yielded. Perhaps, in fact, desirous to be manipulated. He had, in our last interaction recorded between he and his puppet master, Abner, accused him of involving himself with one of the women of the harem. And as I stated last week, this is tantamount to treason. You don't mess with the women of the king's harem. They're for the king alone. Abner never confirms or denies that accusation, but he's so enraged and he swears to commit himself to uniting the two kingdoms under David's rulership, confessing, even confessing, I should say, the anointing from Yahweh on David. Despite this drop in support from his puppet master, Ishbosheth does little to reprimand or stop Abner. In fact, it makes one wonder if Ishbosheth secretly had hero worship. Abner is his great uncle. He was the general for Saul. So with Abner dying at Hebron, Ishbosheth's courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. It is apparent that the strength of the northern kingdom was Abner. So even if, if, if Ishbosheth knew he was on Abner's bad side with him altogether dead now, he knows it's only a matter of time before his kingdom crumbles. Perhaps it's just the fact that the general of the army is dead, period, but now Ishbosheth is vulnerable before the south, the southern kingdom. Israel was likely dismayed. Because Abner had been rallying all of Israel to David. He's been trying to convince the north to fall in line. It's what he told King Ishbosheth he'd be doing. But now, as David 
feared the North sees this failure to unite because, well, Abner went down there to make terms and, and to, to bring us both together, but he never made it back alive. And it wasn't David's fault. It was Joab's fault, Abner's personal enemy. Now you know the plot line of every soap opera. But the end of chapter, it's biblical, no, I'm just kidding. The end of chapter 3 was was leaning into this unexpected grace in all this, though. David's soft heart, his enraged attitude at Joab and the violence of men, made him made many in the whole nation of Israel, north and south, as the Bible states, and all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. So the unexpected grace is that even this happened, Israel is still uniting. They see that David, unlike Saul before him, is not one for bloodlust. He's not one to take shortcuts, cheap shots, cheating advantages. David doesn't work like that. He he values life so much that he never took Saul when he had the chance. He wasn't pleased with the liar who took said he took Saul's life. Again, you can read that story in uh first part of 2 Samuel. He wasn't pleased with Joab who took Abner, another opponent of his. David is patient. You could say maybe he loves his enemies. Maybe he even prays for them as if that was somewhere taught. I don't know where, but apparently some people in Israel haven't gotten that memo. Some people in Israel were likely more than willing to admit that Abner ran the show and now that Abner's gone, they're going to take out this rejected son of Israel, Saul's son. We read again in verse 2. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Bayana, the name of the other was Rechab. Sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The, Be- the Beerothites fled to Gataim and have been sojourners there to this day. We're introduced to two characters, but the stress is this. Did you note where they came from? They are of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul is from Benjamin. Ishbosheth is from Benjamin. It's the preeminent tribe in the north. It's like the Judah of the north, if you catch my illustration. But we're going to find that Ishbosheth's own family and kinsmen, they're not impressed. They're rather disenchanted, it seems, with Ishbosheth. And setting up the, the story more, the author then tells us about yet another remaining son of Saul, kind of, a grandson. We know. Three sons, including Jonathan, died with Saul. And now Ishbosheth is still alive. He's reigning. Last chapter, Saul's daughter Michael, originally married to David, forcibly taken from him, is now returned to David. But then now we read Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul's, excuse me, Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That's the end of 1 Samuel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Side note, I didn't really include this because it's rather trivial. But did you know that some believe it could have just been as simple as a bone fracture? (laughs) Makes you really value our health today. 
Why did the author throw this in? Likely to tell us that the contenders for succeeding Saul as king is becoming less and less. As this is a direct grandson, David is the rightful heir. Mephibosheth couldn't even put up a fight to take the throne. And likely nobody wants to give it to him. Back to Ishbosheth and what he's about to experience from his own kinsmen and Benjamin, we read again, now the sons of Rimon, the Berothite, Rechab, and Deanna set out. About the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest, a common custom in hot countries. You sleep after you've worked for the morning. You sleep in the hottest part of the day to avoid it. Verse 6, And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bayana and his brother escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in the bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. Again, Ishbosheth's own kinsmen. With Abner gone, we see also again who's really calling the shots, who was holding the strings, who was leading the kingdom. Ishbosheth is a rejected son of Israel. But the Benjaminites' reason for taking Ishbosheth out isn't to install themselves in his place. Rather, likely following the lead of Abner, again, just another reason to say, wow, he's really leading the kingdom, who was encouraging loyalty to David, they're going to go to David. Like an Amalekite back in 2 Samuel 1 who tried to take ownership of killing Saul, David wasn't impressed. He said, he was the anointed of God, but you brazenly tell me you were the one who did him in with no thought to his status? David's not impressed by opportunistic bloodlust. Even so, these Benjaminites, they're no doubt proud. They just killed the so-called king. They took his head and went by way of the Arabah. It's a plain all night. As the crow flies, they're literally going about 55 miles. They don't want to stop until they're in front of David. They have some precious cargo, as it were. It's Ishbael himself. They're going to the King David. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord to the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Note here, as the men pointed out, this is Saul's son. Son. It's not Saul. Saul was the one who sought David's life. But as far as Ishbosheth, he's pretty much done whatever Abner's told him. <laughs> and even before Abner was seeking to unite Israel under David, Abner was telling David's commander, let's not do this civil war thing. Let's not spill blood. In other words, Ishbosheth was innocent. But these opportunistic Benjaminites were saying, we finished off Saul's family. It's your kingdom now. You're welcome. <laughs> Right? And furthermore, they have the audacity to say, the Lord has avenged my Lord. In other words, the Lord has avenged for you, David, the king, this day on Saul and on Austin. This is what the Lord wanted, David. This is, this is the Lord acting through us to bring you this. You're welcome. But, verse 9, David answered, Rechab and Bayana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, Rimon, the Berothite, I should have taken that class in seminary. Anyway, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Something I want to pause on. I stressed 
last week when we considered Joab's killing Abner and David's response to that, that this is not how David operates. And here's why he doesn't operate this way. I feel like some Christians want to distill our faith down to just mere mysticism and not reality. Some Christians want to stress human agency so much to the point of denying God any practical insertions into life. Like we'll say at times, be the answer to your own prayer to kind of guard against a form of laziness. Don't just pray, 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 but you also got to do. What can you do? There is room for that. There is time for that. I heard about a guy who once said he wouldn't take jobs because, quote, well, the Lord will provide. That's using God as an excuse for sin. It's what these men are doing. The Lord has handed Saul's son over to you through us. But let's not trade one extreme for the other. In fact, maybe let us be extreme about both. Don't let God's providence and omnipotence, that's a big word meaning all-powerfulness, make you lazy. But don't let man's responsibility make you ignorant or begrudge God working. David says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Do you hear the blame in that or the faith in that? It has been and should be. And David trusts in the Lord to redeem his life out of every adversity. Now, there are some Christians who would scoff and say what David means by that is he lets some of the soldiers do the dirty work. No, not so. He would see it as the Lord's providence for Saul to die in battle or some other way, such as sickness, but he would never, he himself, or commission anyone to kill Saul or Abner or Ishbosheth. Are you understanding what I'm getting at? Does God work through human agency? Of course. But did God not bring plagues on Egypt? Did God not bring plagues on the Philistines in 1 Samuel 5 and 6 so that the Philistines returned the ark back to Israel without so much a finger raised from any Israelite? Has God not fed Israelites and prophets with manna or birds or birds delivering food? David believes in a sovereign, providential, and supernaturally active, omnipotent God. He has redeemed David out of every adversity. Verse 10, David continues, When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Verse 11, How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed. Do you hear the comparison? Ishbosheth was righteous. That's more than he could have said about Saul. Ishbosheth was innocent. He didn't do anything. And the Benjaminites, seeking to ingratiate themselves with David, are wicked men. Shall I now require his blood? Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David didn't want or plan it this way. 
That's been abundantly clear by the author. Back in 2 Samuel 1, David decried the Amalekite who accepted blame of killing Saul on the battlefield. David literally cursed his own general, Joab, for killing Abner. David has given the rewards he thought due to these Benjaminite murderers. Even so, literally the most important heads of the northern Israel government are buried in the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, Hebron, and the path to a united kingdom under David. What is what Abner was working towards is now clear. And this is another redemption by the omnipotent father of David's life out of adversity. David has been a rejected king in Israel by Saul and then Saul's son up to this point. And the reason David was selected as king, according to the chapter we opened with, says, for the Lord sees... Not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And David's heart has not wanted the blood of Saul, Abner, or Ishbosheth. David's heart does not see value in advancing his own kingdom through bloodshed. And some say that's David's fault. That's the only way kingdoms advance. You gotta get your hands dirty. But King Jesus shows us a kingdom inaugurated with his own blood. His own sacrifice. And King Jesus shows us a kingdom advances through love and service and kindness. His kingdom has always expanded actually under persecution and the martyrdom of their own. Not the spilling of the blood of others. Did you know that King Jesus' kingdom is still standing today? It's through grace and redemption that either despite or in spite of, or uh, as unfortunate as it is that some have died, God the Omnipotent Father now moves the rejected King David into fulfilling his kingship. It's where we finish today in chapter 5, the first five verses. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Notice that the tribes are coming to him. He did not head out impatiently. He could have. We might even say he had a good, valid reason to be impatient. But the tribes of Israel came to him and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh, as opposed to David being some foreign usurper, some guy from the outside wanting to be king. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. I mentioned this sometime in the last two weeks, that the reason Israelites wanted a king in the first place was that our king may judge us and go out and f- before us and fight our battles. But even when Saul was king, it was David who slew Goliath. It was David in Joab's position fighting all of Saul's wars. It was David even one time we read, you know, when he was on the run from Saul, he took time out of his busy day to take, save a city. The Philistines were coming to a city named Keilah. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 23. In other words, Whether he's been officially king or not, he's been fulfilling the rule that Israel has wanted anyway. And the Lord said to you, you shall be my shepherd, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. I mentioned this last week also that apparently Yahweh's selection of David has become public knowledge. At some point, Abner knew it, Saul knew it, because Samuel told him that a neighbor better than he would be king. 
Verse 3, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. There have been inscriptions from the 9th century B.C. found in an Israeli town, Tel Dan, that mentions the house of David, as well as an inscription on a Moabite stone, a neighboring country. David is finally king. After all these years, over all Israel, not just the south, a long time in the waiting, a long anticipated fulfillment, and perhaps fulfilled in a way that a young shepherd boy, apparently either disowned or forgotten as son, wasn't classified as son by the dad, whenever, hey, bring all your sons here. Is this it? Okay, there's one more. (laughs) This rejected boy, anointed with oil, told he'd be king, likely wondered, he likely assumed, as many of us might assume, a happy, easy journey. Oh, Saul will no doubt die sometime, and perhaps he will just decrease and I'll increase. But instead, David was sought for for death by Saul for many years. An entire city of priests were slaughtered from a deranged Saul to spite David. David basically sold himself to the Philistines as a mercenary, the same people he slew the giant from. David witnessed multiple people murdering because of Saul's self indulging desire to keep the kingdom. Not to mention the people that just died because they wanted to ingratiate themselves with David. And it's not that God willed or wanted all these things. It's what happens when sinners keep sinning despite the promises of God made to some. And in some ways, those all could have been endings, right? Saul could have speared and killed David. Saul could have caught and put David to death. David could have killed Saul when he had the chance and he would have inherited the kingdom. Much how Abraham and Sarai presumed they would have children by the flesh through Hagar as opposed through the promise by themselves. David will sin. In fact, I made mention foreshadows of it last week. We all see the woman he's taking in. It's going to culminate in a few chapters. But for now, we should know this. The Bible is about Jesus. And Saul had a son named Ishbosheth, and Israel rejected him. So the right king of Israel, Yahweh, is an only begotten son named Jesus, and Israel rejects him. Just as Ishbosheth has his own kinsmen come and slay him, so Jesus has his own kinsmen come and slay him. Just as people of Israel come to make David king by force by presenting him with Ishbosheth's remains to David's dismay, so the people of Israel come to make the greater king David by force to Jesus' dismay, who gets away. Two are laid to rest while David becomes king, so two people are laid to rest as Jesus expires on the cross becoming our king. And an inscription lies somewhere in Israel attesting that King David truly reigned. So inscriptions and places are everywhere in Israel attesting that the greater King David truly reigns. David is called kinsman of Israel, shepherd of Israel, appointed by God to be king. So Jesus is a kinsman of Israel, shepherd of Israel, appointed by God to be king. 
And I came to this ending last night before dinner knowing full well that Jesus is the greater King David and I expressed this, but something still felt like it was missing to me. And I finally heard my conclusion in a way I didn't want to. Before I reveal that, I want to say what was missing was affection. It was affection. David is crowned king, and it should remind us that Jesus was and is crowned king. But if we say, so what? We're deceived. If we aren't moved by this prospect, we're deceived. Our consciences are seared. I've made friends in the last year or two, close friends via the internet. None of them are pastors, different professions. I don't want to get too close with names and professions and the like. All of them are Christian guys. And one guy reported to me last night that via his profession, it came to his attention that a younger girl he knows recently had her parents divorce. And the reason is because one of the parents was literally trafficking her. And the and of the many emotions that produces, one, I wonder, is the sort of rage and outcry of injustice that David felt when he hears what he calls wicked people have been murdering innocent, murdering an innocent man, and then they blame God for it. God called us to do that. It should enrage, uh, enrage us, and it should cause us to want to have a better king. It should compel us to get everyone invited to know the one who will bring ultimate justice, who will not let that situation go without justice where it is needed, forgiveness if it is asked for, and redemption. That's what King Jesus brings. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. The last phrase seeming to be for those who still doubt. Let's pray. Father, we live in this strange, it seems between two kingdoms, world, already and not yet, as some in the past have stated. Your kingdom is a great and glorious kingdom where there is perfect justice that is administered, where there is mercy for those who seek it, peace for those who are in chaos. One of the things you grant us is redemption. Father, David did not want all the things that happened before he became king, but you still find ways to redeem even the most evilest of plans and people. And we, I just think about the situation I heard about last night, and I, I have, I understand the rage David has. Things like this shouldn't happen. And we have a lot of salty, clever ways to deal with it. But vengeance is yours. 
In the meantime, help us to point people to the king who can rule and reign in the hearts of men right now and to spread his love. Thank you that you show us a better way than the kingdoms of this earth. Thank you that whenever you came on the scene and you were crowned king, it was not the way that we expected. Death on a cross and then a resurrection. But you show us that King David's kingdom is no more. But your kingdom is present and still among us. So help us to point people to the kingdom that endures and help us to rejoice in the fact that you are ruling and reigning. As Stephen says, you are at the right hand of the Father. And we thank you for that. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.